We are in Ephesians 3, 14 to 19. And if my memory serves me right, this was the first text I preached from in 2003 after becoming the teaching pastor here. Um, I'm trying to remember what the name of the series was. I've suddenly lost it. The Church Where Glory Dwells. And it was a three-part sermon, but I'm going to do it in much less time tonight. Um, Not the whole thing, but 14 through 19. And you know what was cool as I was reading this is how I've seen God do this in our church. Um, Over the the 20 years or so, um, so grateful for what God is doing. All right, verse 14. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints, what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. And that's where you get the title from, God Filled. That concept, just that concept of being filled up with God it is such a striking statement, it nearly seems impossible. And I think that's the way it ought to feel. The way Paul describes what is happening here is just, somebody described the prayer that he gives here as, the one word that describes it is audacity. Audacious kinds of requests. Requests that just seem too good to possibly be true. And we want to look through how he prays this way and why. So in verses 14 and 15, prayer because of God's gospel. That may not immediately be clear, but we'll see how we get there. In verse 16, prayer for inner strength. And then in verses 17 through 19, prayer for pervasive love. Now, I don't know if you've picked up with what we're doing here on Sunday night, but what I'm trying to do is to to give you a model for when you open your Bible, what are you looking for? Uh, If you're just having your personal devotions, or if you're going to teach, or if you're going to preach, how do you actually attack a passage to where you're actually learning from it what's there, and not just bringing to it what you think might be there? In other words, what does this passage mean to you? Well, who cares what it means to you? What does it mean? Okay, We want to know what it means not just what it means to me. This is not an exercise in, in um, you know, what can I get out of this text. Uh, I want to have God speak to me, and he's used words. What do the words mean? And I'll draw the message from that. In fact, it's called exegesis. You're drawing it out. You're drawing the meaning out of the words rather than the opposite of that is eisegesis. You're putting it into the text and We've all heard plenty of teaching and preaching and devotionals that put into the text what wasn't there. 
Well, I want to know on Monday morning and Tuesday when I'm trying to live and do what God wants me to do, that, that what I've gotten from the Bible is what he actually said, not what I just thought he said. So what we're doing is, is we're trying to work through how would we do this. So when I'm reading a text, here's a couple of things that we're looking for. We're looking for the words that carry the main meaning of the particular passage. Um, you know, the ands and the thes, they're, you know, they provide a little bit, but I'm mainly looking for the, the big ticket words that are going to help me carry forward the meaning. I'm also coming with a mind that, that's asking questions, like why did he say that, or how did he say that, or what does that mean, uh, rather than just skimming over it um, and kind of getting the general idea. So when I start this text, we see these first words, for this reason. So that, that should raise a question for me. What's the question? What reason? What reason are you talking about, Paul? If I don't know what he's talking about, if I don't know what the reason is, then the rest of it's not going to actually make sense. So remember, when we're dropping in tonight to look at this text, this is the middle of a letter. When you read a letter, you usually read the whole thing. You don't just read, oh, I'm going to read a sentence from mom's letter tonight, and we'll run with that. No, you read the whole letter. So we're not doing the whole book, the whole letter to the Ephesians tonight. We're doing a part of it, but, it, but it's connected. We want to keep it connected. So for this reason is the first question that I've actually got to answer. What reason are we talking about? And, and if, if we start looking back into uh, what he's been talking about for this reason, we, we find out that it's, it's the good news that he's been writing about in this letter. If you go back to verse 7 of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace. He, he describes it in terms of unsearchable riches, the, the plan of the mystery, the manifold wisdom of God. And, and he's just finished saying, this is your glory. You Gentiles, this is what makes you shine. This is, this is what, what makes your life significant for this reason. In fact, he's, he's actually using the, the same words back at the beginning of the chapter. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles... Paul is a prisoner in Rome, not so much because of the power of Rome as for the cause of Christ. And, and so he calls himself a prisoner of Christ. Now, if I were looking at that passage, I would say, wow, what did you say? why did you say a prisoner of Christ? Okay, well, it's because of his devotion to Christ. He's going through all of this, including the imprisonment, because of his commitment to getting the gospel to the Gentiles. Now, back at the beginning of chapter 3, when he says, for this reason... It's actually the same reason that he's talking about in our text tonight. For this reason, I bow my knees. And so we have to go all the way back into chapter 2. And there in 19 to 22, we see these memorable words. So then, you, you Gentiles, you ethnicities, are no longer strangers and aliens. You are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So here are these Gentiles, 
who, in terms of the physical temple in Jerusalem, weren't even allowed to go out of the court of the Gentiles into the main part of the temple. There was a wall there, and if you crossed over that wall, you could be executed on the spot by the temple police if you were a Gentile, if you weren't a Jew. And here God has included them in his kingdom, in his family, so that they're not just able to go into the temple, but rather they are the temple. And God is in them. I mean, it is mind-blowingly profound. For this reason, Paul is going to bow his knees. This profound, extensive, amazing good news that takes in Jews and Gentiles into the kingdom of the Messiah, makes them children of God, sets Paul praying for what only God can do. But what he's praying for is in keeping with the plan and the purposes and the promises of God. So here's something we're, we're, we're learning about prayer really from the beginning. If, if we would pay attention to what God promises, if we would pay attention to what God says He's giving and what God is doing and, and what God says His purposes are, it would usher us into praying with more audacious kinds of prayers. We should pray about everything. We should be talking to God about everything. But when we talk about the things that are earth-shaking, we talk about the things that change whole civilizations, we talk about the things that, that change the destiny of a living human being, we're talking about gospel things. We're talking about things that only God can do in the hearts of people. And that drives our praying. And that, that's why I've called this first point, prayer because of God's gospel. And that's kind of a pedantic way to say it. It's a boring way to say it. I wish I could have come up with a more audacious way to say it. But the gospel is driving this kind of praying. And I, I would just encourage you in, in your prayer life to take to take your cue from the prayers that are recorded for us, like this one in the Bible, and, and let it drive how you pray. Uh, you can do this, for instance, even with the book of Psalms, because a lot of those are prayers directed to God. Uh, they might be prayers of worship, uh, but sometimes they're petition. They have other things in there, but, but they're prayers. And you, can, and you can read those prayers, and you can personalize them and pray the same thing back to God. I think you'll find that what happens is your prayer life really expands in terms of its, the, the significant things that you're praying about, and I would encourage you to do that. Now, you notice that he, he is bowing his knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. And the word family... This is an interesting word, and, and it actually has a relationship to this word. And you, you see it, from whom every family in heaven on earth is named. This is the word, let's see, let me think how I anglicize this. Patria, 
Sorry, I have a few scholars in the audience, and I don't want to. I don't want to mess up too bad here. Okay, here we go. Patria. Okay. Can you think of some words that come from patria? Like we actually talked about just this morning, like paternal, like fatherly. A somebody that loves their fatherland would be a a patriot. Yes. So. This is an emphasis on who your father is, okay? So, every family in heaven on earth is named. Now, this is one way that you could translate it, every family in heaven on earth. And, and there is a sense in which we take our cue, every family on earth, in a sense, takes its cue or is a mirror or a reflection of God's fatherhood. But, but what strikes me In heaven and on earth. That's got me scratching my head. Like, are we just talking about, like, families all over the earth? But you say in heaven and on earth. And it's possible to actually translate this word, instead of every, to say from whom the whole family in heaven and on earth is named. And I really like that translation a little better in whom the whole family in heaven and on earth is named. In other words, we're talking about the church, the people of God. Not only those that are still on the earth, but also those that have gone on to heaven. We are one people. We call those in heaven the church triumphant, those on earth the church militant, because we're still fighting the battles. But we are one people. We are one family. You and I are family members with Luther and Calvin and Spurgeon, and Tyndale, and Abraham, and Isaac, and all the people of faith. We, we are one family in heaven and on earth. And he is praying before the Father, what he's going to pray. He, he is praying to God on behalf of God's family, children that are born of him. And so, if, if we were associating this first point with anything, we would be associating this first point with God the Father. God the Father. We come to God, and I, I realize, like, I know enough of you well enough to know that not all of you had fathers that you really respected or that were, that were, that were good dads. And, and you know, that's, that's grieving and that's hurtful. Don't let that keep you from understanding God is the perfect father. My dad was a great dad. His dad didn't get saved till he was in his 80s, and he, he was not a good man. And what my dad said is, I just decided to be exactly opposite of what my dad was. My dad got saved when he was 11, so he had a head start. And, he, and so instead of letting the bad things about his dad cloud his vision of God and ruin his life, he just said, look, I'm going to be the opposite. So if, you know, whatever flaws might have been in your parents, don't, don't let that hold you back because your heavenly father has planted life in you and let his perfection, he's the perfect father. He knows you, he listens to you, he loves you, he provides for you, 
He has an inheritance for you. Let him motivate you to pray and to live and to look for things that are beyond what human beings can do, things that only God can do. So that, this is driving the prayer. Now he's praying first, second, praying first off for inner strength. So verse 16, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. So, I'm, I'm looking for the important words, and so I, I see this phrase, riches of his glory. Glory is shining splendor. It's the shining splendor of God. Riches, what riches means, if you're looking at the Greek text, here's what riches mean. Riches. You don't have to know the original language in order to get something out of your Bible when you have a good translation. If you want to compare translations to get some possibilities, get some range, great. But don't think that because you don't know Greek or you don't know Hebrew, you can't understand your Bible. That's why we have translations, okay? So, according to the riches of his glory. Now, it doesn't say from the riches of his glory. We know that, I mean, how... How many, how big are God's riches of glory? How big? You couldn't measure it. It's immeasurable, right? It's infinite. He's not giving it from the riches. He's giving it according to. So what are the limits to what God can do in you. Infinite. Infinite. No limits. Because this is going to be according to his riches. God is not limited. You are limited, but God is not limited. And that he may grant you to be, okay, here's our next big words here, strengthened and Power. Now, that raises a question for me. Strengthened with power. It almost sounds kind of redundant. Like, what does that mean? Okay. Or at least we know there's a pileup of terms. Well, the word strengthened is a verb form of a word... I'm going to... Y'all are going to know some Greek by the end, even if you never did before, Right? Actually, the an English transliteration. Can you think of any words that we use today that would use that have "crat" or "crot" at the end? Have you ever heard of an autocrat? An autocrat is one who rules on his own. An autocrat. What about a democrat? What does that mean? <laughs> Careful. <laughs> What does is, what is, what is the first part of the word mean? People. Okay, it's ruled by the people. Okay? So, he is, the idea is having control or rule. You'll be controlled, ruled, given this ability with power. And this is the word for 
the word we get dynamite from, they didn't know what dynamite was, and it doesn't mean explosive. What, what this word means is a miraculous level of ability. It's, it's one of the key terms for miracles. And so he's saying to us that God is going to strengthen us. He's going to fortify us. He's going to brace us um, with miraculous ability. He's praying for that. He's praying for a miraculous work of God in these people. And how he's going to do this, through his spirit. And where is he going to do it? In your inner being. Because we so often feel the weakness and limitations of our own human strength, it's easy to forget that God's spirit who dwells in every true believer, gives that believer supernatural power. A lot of times I'm not thinking about that. I'm just thinking about what I can do as a human being. I'm not thinking outside the box of that. But he's praying that you would be strengthened by the Spirit in your inner being. In other words, it's not just strengthened so you can like have lightning fall on, on your worst enemy or, or you can, you know, you have this windfall come to your bank account or something goofy like that. He's talking about changes inside you. What is it that explains how and why true Christians undergo such a transformation from what they were naturally to what they are in Christ. I mean, a lot of the people that you know in the congregation now, you, you know them as those that God has been changing over time. If you knew them where they started before they were born again, you wouldn't recognize them. They wouldn't be anything like what they are now. I mean, they might look the same in some ways. Some of them don't even look the same because God's changed their countenance. Think about this. Because God has given us a spirit in our inner being, he indwells every true believer, there's, there's no limit to how, how greatly you can be transformed. One of the blessings of having been a believer for a number of years and looking back is seeing ways you've changed that you never thought possible. And, and the reason it didn't seem possible is because it wasn't based on what you could do. It was based on what God can do when he strengthens you with miraculous power. So in the first instance, we're praying because of God the Father. In this instance... This power of the Spirit transforming a person, this focuses on God, the Holy Spirit. Now, you can tell where we're going. God the Father, God the Holy Spirit. Who do you think is going to be the focus of the next one? Yeah, Christ, God the Son. And that's exactly the way this works out. The power of the Spirit looks toward divine development in the hearts and lives of believers for a reason. And that reason is on the other side of the board. Just missed the organ. So that. 
You know, conjunctions aren't always that important, but they do provide the connection to the material. Why does the Holy Spirit do what He does? Why does He strengthen you with this miraculous power? So that. So that what? Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. You say, well, whoa, 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 wait a minute. I thought Paul was writing to believers. He is writing to believers. He's writing to believers. So is what Paul is praying here, that, is he praying that they would be saved? No. Is he praying that they would have Christ because they don't have Christ? No. Okay. Is he saying that somehow Christ through the Holy Spirit doesn't indwell them yet? No. Paul's not going to contradict himself. Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Let's go ahead and read the rest of these verses, and then let's start looking through what he does mean. What, what does it mean, Christ may dwell? That's the question that ought to come to mind. What do you mean, Christ may dwell in my heart? I thought he was already there. Okay? That you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and de- height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. All right, what he's picturing here, and the key really is going to be this word dwell. There's some range of meaning to that. What he's saying is Christ, he's he's praying that, that Christ would take full influence and control of every part of a believer. And here's the picture that helps me think about this. Picture someone buying an old, broken-down house. Some of you flip houses. You buy an old, broken-down house filled with junk. And you're going to move in. This is going to be owner-occupied. Over time, the new owner clears out the junk and renovates the house to make it his home. That's what Paul is praying for here. You and I are owner-occupied. We belong to Jesus. Through the Holy Spirit, He's already in our lives. But we want Him to go room by room and clear out the junk. We want Him to renovate We want Him to bring things up to speed, up to the right standards from from the the broken out walls and busted windows and, and, and the dirt in the corners. We want Him to clean it all up. We want Him to make it His home. We want Christ to have full control. That's, that's what He's praying. So then that raises the question, well, what does that look like when Christ is actually fully in control. And he, he's changing metaphors on us. He, he talks about, I really should use green for rooted, shouldn't I? Um, he says we're rooted and we're grounded in love. So a root is part of what? Like a, a plant, a tree, okay? If you 
get rid of the roots, the plant dies. You've got to have the roots, drawing sustenance. The grounded, you could translate it also like founded, but the idea of a foundation. Get rid of the foundation, and the house falls. So what we're rooted and grounded in, you, if you get rid of it, you dry up, and the house falls. Rooted and grounded in love. Love. So this is tying in to what we found in all the New Testament and the Old as well. Love for God, love for others, drives everything that's right to do in life. It bars you from everything that's wrong to do in life. And it's God's love for us that generates our love for Him and our love for others. So it goes all the way back to that gospel reasons, what the Father has done in loving us as His children, that we're able to do this. But now, as Christ takes control of our lives, it looks more and more like love. And he prays that we would have the strength to comprehend, the, the ability to even have an idea, to understand with all the saints. We need to ask the question, you know, like, <clears throat> we've, we've seen this word a lot, with all the saints. Oh, well, that means somebody that wears a halo to work. That means somebody who's been uh, made a saint by the church. No. That means somebody that is holy, that is somebody that belongs to God. So, we want to have the strength to comprehend with all the saints, all the people of God, because love, you know, love is not a self-centered thing. Love is a connected thing. Love is a community thing. All the holy ones, all that belong to God, this is a community-wide phenomenon. All of them, length, height, and depth. What is the length and the breadth and length and height and depth. What are, what are those words? What are the, I mean, what are we talking about here? I'm confused. Like, what is he talking about? Breadth, length, height. If somebody were saying, what is the length? What is the depth? How many inches? How many feet? What, what are we talking about? Yeah, some kind of measurement. And he's, he's actually, he's already been kind of touching on the building idea, Christ dwelling, so we're talking about a building. It's like, you know, what? how long is it? How high is it? How wide is it? Uh, we're, t we're talking about 3D kind of language, and this is consistent with our being the temple of God, that concept he introduced earlier on. We're, we're part of the temple of God, and God's dwelling in us. And here, Christ is dwelling in us. So all this is fitting together with what he's already pictured, to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge. Now, he's already talked about God's power, God's surpassing power in chapter 1. In chapter 2, he talked about God's surpassing grace, this overwhelming, overflowing grace. And now you have this overwhelming, overflowing love. 
You have power and grace, favor you don't deserve, and love, and all of it is just overflowing, overwhelming. So the ultimate purpose is in order that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. So picture in the Old Testament, both when the tabernacle was built and then later when Solomon's temple was built, God's Shekinah glory, fire by, day, I mean, fire by night, pillar of cloud by day, came to rest, came into the tabernacle, and then later came into the temple showing that God was there, the dwelling place glory of God. And this is exactly the picture that we've seen back in Ephesians chapter 2, 21 and 22, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. The ultimate destination, the ultimate destiny of our completed sanctification, what God is doing in our life, this renovation that's happening, we call glorification. When we are completely sinless and immortal, And this being filled, so filled up with all the fullness of God, that is our destiny. And as we progress in our sanctification, as we become more and more like Jesus, it's like that water filling the glass. It forces out things that aren't pleasing to God. And there's more and more the fullness that God brings. Now, that's not saying that one day we're going to be, be gods, like the Mormons teach. But we can be filled with God. You have reference to being filled with the Spirit. The way I like to think of it is this way. If I took this glass, I could not put a whole ocean in it. But I could fill the whole glass with ocean. So you and I aren't going to become God, but we can be completely filled with God. We were made in God's image. We we were made to be like God, to be His managers in the earth, to be those that reflected His glory. And this is what Christ is doing through the gospel. Let me encourage you this week to be praying in in tune with the audacious range that the gospel gives to us. Because of God's gospel, God the Father and His love for us, pray for that inner strength from the Spirit, that, that it is a miraculous level, that transformation. Pray it for your children. Pray it for your parents. Pray it for your siblings. Pray it for your brothers and sisters in Christ. And then... Pray for that pervasive love as God the Son, who's displayed to us what love looks like, takes over room by room every part of who we are till we are filled with the fullness of God. May we be God-filled people even this week. Let's pray. Dear God, thank you. Thank you for your kindness to us. And Lord, I know for myself, the hard thing for me is to not put limits on what you can and 
will do in my life and in the lives of my brothers and sisters. It's so easy for me to be short-sighted, to be discouraged, to, to have low expectations. And yet, God, when we read what you are doing, when we see your purposes, when we see your plan, when we see the work of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we realize that, that there is still much, much for you to do in our lives. Lord, continue your transforming work till we are filled with the fullness of God. For it's in Christ's name we pray.